When were two people ever so sure they were just born to live with each other? We can't fail to find happiness together in this wonderful world of today and tomorrow. Six months after college, I got married, and a year and a half, two years later, I had, had children, and lived a very uh, married life, all right? And when my children got into school and into public school, I became active in, in, in the public schools. I got active in the PTA, I ran the book sale, I became the president and all that, and then met a woman and her family, we became very close. We would spend weekends out at Fire Isle, and men would come out weekends, and we would spend the week together. And in the course of the week when the husbands weren't there, um, I kind of came on to her. And she said no, she'd been there and she'd done that and she didn't want to jeopardize her marriage. And um, I just tucked it back under. And I tucked it back under for probably another 10 years. It's easy to imagine the 1950s and 1960s as a closeted era, a lonely era, an era when women who desired other women suffered silently in heterosexual marriages. You know, my whole family had always been very traditional. Um, I used, I, it was a long marriage too. Um, and I felt that I owed that to my husband and my, I, we did have two children. My mother had soldiered on through difficult times. Her mother <laughs> had soldiered on. I thought that was how one carried the flag for womanhood. You, you had to do these things. Um, but it was bewildering. In the decades after World War II, some married women had passionate sexual and romantic relationships with other women. They found each other in suburban neighborhoods, in urban apartment buildings, at church retreats, and at PTA meetings. Some of these women rightly feared that their husbands would discover their relationship. Yet far more often, husbands turned a blind eye to their wives' affairs, choosing to keep up appearances rather than face the stigma of divorce. In her groundbreaking new book, Her Neighbor's Wife, Sexing History co-host Lauren Gutterman uncovers this hidden history of lesbian desire within marriage. Her Neighbor's Wife shares the stories of hundreds of women who balanced marriage and same-sex desire in the decades following World War II. Each chapter offers a fascinating look at a world in which traditional marriage allowed for lesbian desire to exist and sometimes to thrive. She touched my shoulder with her tongue, lying next to me, remembering the movie and laughing about it. It touched me so gently along my leg, kissed me. It was wonderful. Published by the University of Pennsylvania Press, Her Neighbor's Wife is available for pre-order on www.sexinghistory.com. Her Neighbor's Wife by Lauren Gutterman. Order your copy today. Got a worry in the world, except about their toys. 
Little Susie May, who lives across the way, came to visit us, and this is what she had to say. Johnny's got a yo-yo, he got it from his dad. He always lets me play with it, it's the best toy I ever had. He never lends it out to any other kids in town. That was Ruth Wallace singing her 1947 hit, Johnny Had a Yo-Yo. Ruth Wallace was one of the greatest singers, comedians, and performers of sexually suggestive lyrics in the post-war United States. Chances are, you've never heard of her. Most of her catalog remains on vinyl, and historians have forgotten her. But from the 1940s until the early 1970s, Ruth Wallace was a mainstay at supper clubs and hotels. She sang her party songs on small and large stages around the world. Her risque records, which had titles like Old Party Favorites and House Party, were banned in Boston and confiscated in Australia. Although most of her songs were too edgy for radio play, three of her singles sold over a million copies each. Devoted audiences and music critics alike celebrated Ruth Wallace as a saucy sophisticate and applauded her witty wordplay. For those interested in the sexual past, Ruth Wallace's records and her career are treasures. Not only was her music smart and funny, but she managed to produce sexually charged records when anti-obscenity laws were in full force. At a time when it was legally risky for entertainers to sing for profit and pleasure about sexuality, Ruth used innuendo to playfully hint at a variety of straight and queer sexual pleasures. The cast of characters in her many songs include horny husbands who want pizza every night, a girlfriend who demands that her boyfriend give it to her in the back seat, it being an engagement ring of course, an oil man from Texas who liked to drill all day long, and a discontented mama who buys a do-it-yourself kit because papa can't do it no more. Mama's gotta get herself a do-it-yourself kit cause papa can't do it no more. Mama's gotta get herself a do-it-yourself kit Papa can't get to it no more Got a couple of odds and an end that needs handling This chick gonna lay and those eggs need candling Won't someone play on my little old mandolin Papa can't do it no more Ruth Wallace's songs teased about same-sex desires at a moment when homosexuality was stigmatized and being openly gay or lesbian carried enormous social risks. But in Wallace's songs, we meet men whom she campily calls queer things, and she expresses a live and let live attitude to boys who like to act and dress like girls and to the not-so-closeted gay men married to women. We got married in the spring to prove it. Here's my wedding ring. I always think of my blushing groom whenever I see the pansies bloom. Oh, no! Say it cannot be. Queer things are happening to me. He's never been to gay Paris, but he is gay as he can be. His friends are sweet. They're the queerest band. They turn my home into a fairy 
Fairyland. We have decided it cannot be. I'm not for him and he's not for me. He can do what he wants and I'll do what I can. But the both of us have got to get up Although the 1950s are typically remembered as an era of sexual repression, heated cultural battles over sexual values played out in bedrooms, in the courts, and also in popular culture. Ruth Wallace's music represented an increasingly important current in American culture, one that insisted on sexual fulfillment as essential to personal happiness. Whether her song's characters were male or female, or gay or straight, Ruth Wallace's song celebrated the pursuit of sexual pleasure. Ruth Wallace's songs focused on different kinds of pleasure and bodies. She found humor in sexual potential and in sexual failings. Impotent men and men with gigantic fishing poles. Flat-chested women and women with ice cream cone figures. Two scoops, if you please. Ruth Wallace's story turns out to be even more complex than the story of a provocative performer who skirted censorship through her mastery of innuendo and saucy wordplay. The very thing that made Ruth famous, her sexual wordplay, was the greatest obstacle to the art she wanted to create and to the professional legitimacy she tried to attain. We see in her career the story of a woman struggling to be taken seriously as a performer at a moment when women were expected to be housewives and to hold little ambition beyond motherhood. Once the restrictive obscenity laws that supercharged her career gave way to a more permissive culture in the United States, Ruth Wallace's relevance and popularity declined. As fewer American audiences were shocked by Ruth's borderline performances, she took her show on the road to Australia, where stricter obscenity laws made her wordplay delightfully subversive. Ruth Wallace's story is also one of ambitious and funny Jewish women in mid-century America who felt empowered to pursue creative and public careers. Ruth was part of a tradition of Jewish comics whose use of satire and mockery defined their humor. As historian Joyce Antler has phrased it, the immigrant experience of Jewish comedians living between two worlds has given them a sharp, critical edge and the ability to express the anxieties and foibles of contemporary culture. But even more than this, we see in her career a story about the costs of sexual performance for women which both embodied and limited Ruth's scope of expression. Even though Ruth attempted to go straight throughout her lifetime, audiences insisted that she remain the saucy chanteuse and stick with witty songs about sex and sexuality. Audiences roared for her songs about Davy's dinghy, but were tepid about her love ballads. I'm Lauren Gutterman. I'm Gillian Frank. Welcome to the season finale of Sexing History. In this episode, we spotlight Ruth Wallace's music and career. You'll hear some of her old party favorites, some deep cuts, and also some never-before-released songs. Ruth Wallace was born as Ruth Wohl in 1920 in New York City to Jewish immigrant parents from Austria. While still in high school, she began auditioning her songs for publishers. Publishers rejected these songs, which were mostly sentimental ballads. But they were impressed with Ruth's singing and encouraged her to continue performing. Ruth Wool adopted a stage name, Ruth Wallace, which she took from Wallace Simpson, the American divorcee who created an international scandal when she married the King of England. While still in high school, Ruth landed a spot singing for WHN, a New York City radio station. After she completed high school, 
She toured around the United States with a number of orchestras. Ruth briefly sang for the King of Swing, Benny Goodman, and for band leader Isham Jones. She also worked the cocktail and hotel lounge circuit, where she played piano and sang. While performing in a club called the Latin Quarter in Boston in 1942, Ruth met and began to date its manager, High Passman. The two continued to correspond when High was deployed overseas during World War II. They married in 1945 after High returned home. In an October 1945 letter, the still-enlisted High told a friend about their courtship and marriage. I married a Jewish girl from New York that I have known for three years. She's a beautiful redhead and we are crazy about each other. My wife's name is Ruth and she is in show business. She plays the piano and sings, also writes her own material. She's quite a girl. High soon became Ruth's manager. Together, they had two children, Alan and Ronnie. You'll be hearing from Alan Passman throughout this episode. Around 1947, a record executive told Ruth about a best-selling novelty song filled with double entendres, the Freckles song. She's got freckles on her, but she is nice. And when she's in my arms, it's paradise. She smells like a rose from her head down to her toes. She's got freckles on her, but she is nice. The record executive suggested that Ruth try her hand at novelty songs. Ruth started to write and perform humorous songs filled with innuendos. She quickly became known as the saucy sophisticate for songs such as An Oilman from Texas and the Dingy Song. Sailing, sailing over the ocean blue, Davy's got a dinghy, so he paddles his own canoe. He's got the cutest little dinghy in the Navy And all the girlies know that it's so The cutest little dinghy in the Navy They love to watch him go heave-ho In 1947, Ruth released her first EP, which featured Johnny Had a Yo-Yo and Your Daddy Was a Soldier. The record topped the jukebox bestseller list. A year later, she released her first LP, Old Party Favorites, which sold close to a million copies. One of the earliest reviews of Ruth's performance in Billboard magazine described her as having the peculiar talent of being able to hold a humorous mirror to the seamy side of life and, when expressed in her sophisticated style, the weaknesses of human nature assume a humorous aspect. Ruth Wallace's career bloomed as nightclubs took over the entertainment life of the United States. In the 1940s, most American cities had several nightclubs, often called supper clubs. The larger clubs, such as the famed Copacabana in New York City, hosted big bands, showgirls, and live orchestras. For patrons, supper clubs provided an evening of dinner, dancing, and a night away from home. Performers could offer more risque entertainment than Americans heard over their radios or saw on their television sets. Performers would typically hold down a residency at a club for weeks on end, before moving to another city and another nightclub. Smaller supper clubs offered performers venues where they could showcase their material with the hopes of getting a hit and moving on to bigger stages in Los Angeles or New York City. Mama was a star, yeah, 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 mama was a star. 
And everywhere that she appeared, the people stood and cheered, cause Mama was a star. And in her dressing room, miles of flowers and gallons of perfume. And she ate steak and caviar and drove a foreign car, cause Mama was a star. And when you are a star, the world takes on a rosy glow. Glasses everywhere you go. Mama was a gas, and they all said that she had class. But it was not the clothes she wore that made the world adore her. They came from near and far. Because Mama, she had something that made others look like nothing. That's why Mama was a star. That was a clip of the title song of Ruth Wallace's unreleased musical, Mama Was a Star. Ruth Wallace toured both large and small clubs, alternating between shorter and longer residencies. High described Ruth's touring circuit in a 1949 letter. Ruth worked in Cincinnati three weeks, then to Kansas City for two weeks, then Omaha for six weeks, then Dallas, Texas for five weeks, San Diego two weeks, and now here in Los Angeles for at least eight weeks. So you see, we did some traveling, and Ruth has only about 12 days off in all this time. While touring across the country, Ruth drew an economically diverse audience that ranged from suburban middle-class couples to rural farmers. Her own promotional material emphasized that her admirers include people in all walks of life, from college professors to longshoremen. Ruth Wallace was part of a long tradition of brash and body Jewish female comedians who pushed the edges of the male-dominated comedy industry and infused it with a distinctly Jewish and female perspective. Her own cohort included Patsy Abbott, Belle Barth, Rusty Warren, and Pearl Williams. These working-class Jewish comedians all released best-selling party records that combined music and comedy. To some degree, ethnic stereotypes about outspoken Jewish women created space for their careers. So too did a Jewish cultural pattern that empowered women to strive for professional success. Ruth and her contemporaries challenged conventional understandings of appropriate behavior for all women. With their blatantly sexual humor, they broached topics that were typically reserved for men and private spaces. Masturbation, intercourse, prostitution, genitalia, and homosexuality. Few topics were off limits. Jewishness, in addition to sexuality, informed the comedy routines of Ruth and her female contemporaries. They joked about Jewish identity, food and culture, and used Yiddish words. Always said marry a nice Jewish boy Being a nice Jewish girl I obeyed So now for all the nice Jewish boys I'd like to sing a nice Jewish serenade You take yourself a lovely little Jewish bride So your mama and your papa will be satisfied Then you keep a little shiksa on the side That's marriage Jewish style 
You buy your wife a lovely yellow Cadillac. Get her a steady maid so she can just relax while you keep the shicks a busy on her bag. That's marriage Jewish style. You go down to Miami every winter for a spree. You go down there in March. You send your wife in January. Many of these female Jewish comedians lived and performed in Miami, a city that became a Jewish metropolis in the post-war period, and which also became known as the Southern Borscht Belt. So I went to Miami to have two weeks fun, to lay on the sand there with somebody's son. I didn't know when I decided to go, but the American plan does not include a man. My name is Alan Pastman. I'm the son of Ruth Wallace. And by the time I was three, we had settled in the area in Miami Beach. Growing up in Miami Beach, I, I, I would often describe our family as being showbiz Jews. We were, my sister and I, Ronnie and I, were brought up uh, as Reformed Jews. Not terribly religious, but we certainly um, did all the things that we were supposed to do back then. My parents weren't uh, particularly religious. They supported our local temple. So um, in, in, in that setting, my mom performed in, in the local hotels for many, many years. There were, there were numerous hotels down in Miami. She performed uh, probably in, in six or eight venues. Although Ruth belonged to a cohort of Miami-based Jewish performers, she disliked her peers. In an interview with the journalist Chuck Miller, Ruth remembered that she had to watch as her best novelty songs were covered by artists like Rusty Warren and Belle Barth. There were times that, that she had to prevent them from singing her songs. So some of them would be performing her songs and she would hear about it and we'd have to take action. <laughs> At the time, I was probably nine. I, I know, know that my father and, and, and my, my, my mom had to uh, pursue both Belle Barth and also Rusty Warren. Here's the fabulous Rusty Warren talking about covering Ruth Wallace's songs. Ruth Wallace was the beginning, yeah. She was the first to get around in nightclubs and go and, and play her Davies Little Dingy and all the little cute stuff that she did. I think I came pretty much behind her. I remembered I had some of, of her albums that I copied from, and that's why her husband said you could, you know, you could tell somebody that this Ruth Wallace did this song. But, you know, you know how life is. <laughs> as far as I was concerned, cause I found some of her albums and I copied some of her songs. Until I started getting my own, my own numbers. Uh, m my mom would be at the table speaking with my dad, and she, I'd hear the word "tramp," and and my mom would look back to me and start singing "tramp, tramp, tramp" like the soldiers go. That was her way of, of as though I didn't know what she was talking about. But she she didn't care for them. She didn't care for the the type of material that they did. Of course, I'm sure that she didn't like being overshadowed by people that were basically singing songs much, much more crude, much simpler, uh, not as well written. But, you know, that was just a sign of the times. The bumps were bumpier, the grinds were grindier, the girls were bustier and more behindier. That was the burlicue that was. 
grinds were grindier, the bumps were bumpier, the broads were broadier, a little bit lumpier, and that was the burlic cue that was. There was an art to taking it off, and many were the brides to be who came to learn the honeymoon specialty. Pasties were pastier, the G-string stringier, the popcorn tastier, the tassel swingier. That was the burlicue that was. Many fans first heard Ruth Wallace's music through her party records. In the 1940s and 50s, there was a thriving market for under-the-counter risque recordings. These risque albums offered audiences an opportunity to enjoy the exciting, uncensored atmosphere of the nightclub from their own living rooms. Often these records were played at parties as icebreakers. Party albums enabled comedians like Ruth Wallace to reach audiences who could not necessarily attend their live acts. They also offered listeners the pleasure of hearing someone talk about sex. Ruth's promotional material played up the idea that her music was supposed to be experienced in a group. Artwork for her album covers featured partygoers drinking and celebrating and laughing together. Ruth Wallace's records argued that sexual humor was a mainstay of American conversation. The jacket for her album, The Spice is Right, declared as much when it said, There was Kinsey, there was Freud, there was Havelock Ellis. Now comes the definitive report, the Behind the Shade Report by Ruth Wallace. It's strange and funny, and Ruth sets it all to music. Ruth joined a chorus of American voices when she sang about how sex was key to a happy marriage, and she was hardly a soloist when she sang about the sexual pleasures that might be found before and outside of the marriage bed. This increasingly vocal emphasis on sexual pleasure worried some self-appointed guardians of morality. Government officials and purity crusaders feared that party records, which they called dirty discs, would seduce children and adults into committing immoral and dangerous sexual acts. A sexual song, they believed, could lead to sex crime and deviance. The post-war period saw a growth in anti-obscenity campaigns. Law enforcement, the press, and decency leagues campaigned at the local level against a growing market in obscene and suggestive records, and district attorneys actively investigated and raided record shops for indecent phonograph recordings. At the beginning of her career, censors considered Ruth's records to be borderline material, her albums contained erotic imagery that walked the line between respectable discussions of sex and illicit pornography. Throughout the 1940s and 1950s, record distributors and owners faced local and federal prosecution for shipping pornographic recordings. As a result, larger record companies avoided performers like Ruth Wallace. Few radio stations would play Ruth's records on air because they feared they would lose their licenses. Smaller record labels were more willing to take risks, and one such company released Ruth's first record. Your daddy was a soldier and your mommy was a wag. They crossed the sea together and together they came back. Your daddy was so handsome and he looked real sharp and brown. And all the fellas whistled when your mommy went to town. Because Ruth faced so much difficulty getting major record labels to publish her songs, in 1949, she and High founded Wallace Original Records. Having their own label gave Ruth and High creative and financial control and ownership of her compositions. 
My mom and dad, along with a fellow named Joe Leibowitz, formed Wallace Original Record Corporation. This is probably probably talking about sometime late in the 40s. My dad looked at the situation, realized that it was hard to get labels to carry my mom's stuff, and he decided the way to do it was to form their own record label, and that worked just fine. Ruth and High still worried about law enforcement. In a letter written in October 1950, Ruth and High's business partner, Joe Leibovitz, recalled firsthand the chilling effect of these post-war anti-obscenity campaigns. Our records have never been considered filthy or obscene and have never been molested by the authorities, except in Boston, where children are apparently born only through divine means. About a year or so ago, several really dirty records enjoyed a great vogue. They used dirty and obscene language. The facts of life and even the daily functions of the human body were spoken of in crude terms. While they sold in fairly large quantities, these records create a huge wave of resentment throughout the nation. It even reached Congress, where a bill was passed making it a criminal offense to send obscene records through the mails. Spurred by this action, local politicians in many parts of the country became self-righteous censors and organized so-called purity drives. The really dirty records were, of course, immediately taken off the market, but that did not stop the politicians. Drives were run in Chicago, Kansas City, St. Louis, Hartford, Newark, and in many other cities. Local gentlemen, who were probably making a fast buck from bordellos and gambling joints, sought long and hard to find something to ban. These drives are now beginning to ebb, but it will probably be at least six or eight months before the drives and the repercussions have disappeared. Joel Leibovitz wrote this letter at the very moment that federal law enforcement and politicians trained their sights on dirty discs. In 1950, amid local law enforcement crackdowns on party records, the Supreme Court ruled in U.S. v. Alpers that it was illegal to ship obscene phonograph records across state lines and that records could be prosecuted as obscene. These obscenity laws affected how audiences bought Ruth's records and shaped how they listened to her music. Ruth's fans understood that she risked prosecution for her songs. This knowledge added a layer of excitement to the ingenious wordplay that formed the heart of Ruth's repertoire. Matilda Jones was going steady, but the guy was never ready. He just couldn't satisfy her curiosity. He talked real big about what he'd do, till finally she said, Listen, you, if you've got what you say you've got, you'll hit the spot with me. Hey, give me what you promised me, Daddy. Do right by your baby tonight. You know you promised to give me that thrill. And if you don't come up with it, I'll find somebody else who will. So give me what you promised me, Daddy. Do right by your baby tonight. You told me that I'd get it last Sunday in the back seat of the car. And if you do what you promise, then I'll really know how good a man you are. Give me what you promised me, Daddy. Come on, spring. Give me, give me, give me my engagement In response to strict obscenity laws, Ruth Wallace found ingenious ways to speak about sex. 
She used double meanings that allowed her to stay within the letter of the law while violating its spirit. The pleasure Ruth offered to listeners wasn't just sexual imagery. It was the pleasure of decoding the meanings of her lyrics and knowing that an engagement ring wasn't just an engagement ring. Even as she pushed the boundaries of respectability, Ruth publicly insisted that there was nothing dirty about her music. Part of what enabled Ruth to insist that she was a respectable woman and that it was okay to talk about sex was her newfound status as a mother. In May of 1950, as campaigns against dirty records raged, her husband wrote a letter to his friend announcing exciting news. You'll understand why I couldn't leave Ruth alone in Detroit. She's now in her third month, and if all goes well, we expect to have an heir early in December. As things stand now, we expect to retire and go back to Boston and have the baby there. In September of 1950, as Ruth entered into her last trimester, she and Hai returned to Boston to stay with Hai's parents. The two awaited the December 7th due date eagerly. At the same time, they made plans to perform in New Orleans six weeks after the expected birth. Financial insecurity motivated them. Hai explained in a letter, if we were sure the record business would continue, she could retire and I could find something to do. Looks like we'll have to cross our bridges as we come to them. Ruth and Hai's first child, Ronnie Passman, was born on December 18, 1950. High and Ruth's parents helped care for her, while the two of them quickly returned to the road. Around August of 1952, Ruth became pregnant with her second child. High confided in a friend. We didn't plan for it, but now that it's on the way, we are rather excited and happy about it. Alan Pastman was born on March 28, 1953. Even though she now had two children, the road called to Ruth. High explained to a friend, my record business is going along fine, and we can live real well on that income alone. However, Ruth intends to go back to work next September. As Ruth's career grew, so too did the time she spent away from her kids. She spent a lot of time working, actually. I can remember that when we lived in Miami, she may be playing at one of the hotels at night. Then uh, noontime the next day, her arranger would be over. They'd be sitting at the piano going over songs that she'd written writing down the, the arrangement for the song, the music, fine-tuning it. By 6 o'clock that evening, she'd eat and be getting ready to go and perform. She'd, she'd have a, a show at 9 and a show at 1 a.m. in the morning. And then, you know, she, she would come home and she'd just go back through all that again. So she really spent a lot of time in work-related activities. I really don't ever recall her vacationing, to tell you the, the, the truth. You know, a lot of the challenges were just the fact that when she was away from home, this really um, became a problem with, with her success. Unfortunately, uh, my dad was around more than my mom was, and my sister, I, I think, noticed the absence of my mother more than I did. Because images of homebound mothers dominated popular culture in the 1950s, Ruth needed to maintain her maternal image. The back of her 1953 album, Saucy Hit Parade, defensively notes, Although her records are sold in foreign countries, she has never left the continental U.S., spending half her time touring and the other half with her husband and two youngsters at home. Even as they toured, Ruth and Hai kept trying to compose their next hit record that would keep Ruth in the limelight and keep the money coming in. In one letter, the couple wrote, We're going to release our next record and go through the same routine with it until we get a hit or run out of money. The refrain running through Ruth and High's letters from these years 
was their hope for a hit and the loneliness of being on the road for long stretches of time. You can laugh at the world, so here I stand, folks, with my courage unfurled. Long as I got my sense of humor, nothing can get me down. Long as I got my sense of humor, I'm queen of this old town. Even when the critics say I'm falling on my face, I just chuckle and I knuckle down and put my jigsaw puzzle world in place. Long as I laugh when things upset me, nobody knows I'm blue. I am my own best friend, and my best friend always sees me through. Things will straighten out, I say I need a little time. Even when life is pulled a bloomer, long as I got my sense of humor, I know that the last laugh will be mine. Part of what limited Ruth's mainstream success was that she was trapped in her image of being a sexy singer. My, my mom was uh, basically a, an entertainer. She was a cabaret singer. She wrote all the words and music and performed them to over 200 songs that she composed. She, she wrote songs that ranged anywhere from calypso to jazz to show-type songs. Uh, she was, unfortunately, she was typecast as a risque chanteuse. And uh, although she had quite a voice, despite being multidimensional, she was, she, she really just sort of got stuck uh, being known as a risque comedian. But as my father said, it's the, the risque songs paid all the bills. In 1949, Ruth told Variety magazine that she wanted to come clean that she felt badly about the influence her music could have on young people, and that she disliked the sexual attention her music brought her on the road. Ruth may well have been bowing to social expectations by denying that she enjoyed singing erotically charged songs, but her struggle to branch out to other musical genres suggests that she truly did hope for success beyond the party albums that confined her to the sidelines of the music industry. In 1960, a reviewer for the Washington Post noted that Ruth was trying to branch out in her recent nightclub performances without much success. Audiences never responded to Ruth's dramatic love ballads the way they did her racy, humorous tunes. She might well be a married mother of two, a talented lyricist with a beautiful voice, a performer capable of conveying a range of feelings and stories. It didn't matter. She was the saucy sophisticate in her listeners' minds, and they were not eager to see her change. During the 1960s, as obscenity law enforcement loosened in the United States, and performers offered even riskier fare, Ruth's sexual performance became less of a draw. The sexual revolution had made performances blunter and crasser. Ruth's act, which was never ruled obscene, depended upon the silences around sexuality, even as her actual performances undermined these silences. She played with the things not said and made them sayable, but as the courts liberalized the definition of obscenity, Ruth's performances made less sense and had less appeal when the very things she hinted at were openly displayed. What was the fun in hinting at genitals in song when you could see full frontal nudity in a Broadway musical? But as Ruth's career waned in the United States, she found increasing success abroad, specifically 
in Australia, where obscenity laws continue to be enforced. In 1961, Ruth traveled to Australia for a two-week appearance at a nightclub in Sydney. It was her first tour there, and she and Hai brought along their two kids for what they hoped would be a family vacation. Australian authorities, however, were already primed to censor Ruth. In the mid-1950s, newspapers had printed a slew of articles declaring Ruth Wallace's music to be obscene. I have, I have ten risque albums. Somehow the albums, we distributed them all over the world. Uh, somebody from Australia said it would be a good idea to bring Ruth Wallace down here. When I went down there, the records were banned in Australia. But they said, we've got, we've got a good idea. You come off the plane with two of your albums under your arm. And sure enough, the police were waiting for me. I was arrested. Of course, they laughed, but I was arrested. And then, of course, they said, well, not to worry. And then I opened at Checkers, which was a very big club there. And I did very well, and I went back many times. I was there, I think, 16 weeks the first time. And then the records went to Tasmania. I had to appear in Tasmania and New Zealand and South Africa. As soon as Ruth stepped off the plane in Sydney, customs agents confiscated copies of her latest album, Hot Songs for Cool Nights. They refused to let the albums into the country, and they questioned Ruth about her work for an hour. Ruth denied that there was anything obscene about her music. She offered to sing her songs before a magistrate in the Australian Senate to prove that they were not body and made national news. I flew into Mascot Field one day The customs took my records away But I heard Senator Henty say In his jolly way Oh, not to worry Oh, not to sigh You sign your records by and by You'll be right Ultimately, Ruth's songs were banned from Australian radio but her run-in with authorities only increased her popularity. Ruth was all too happy to flaunt her notoriety on stage. She even appeared on a popular Australian talk show in 1964, where she and the host played up her transgressive image. You know, we're very lucky to have Ruth in the show. In fact, she's, she almost didn't get into the country. <laughs> well, I suppose you all read about the trouble she had with the Australian Customs Department. Of course, she got through the customs or eventually... With sold-out shows and extended residencies down under, Ruth spent months at a time in Australia. This time away from home took a toll on her children and on her marriage. They would call us from Australia. My mom and my dad would, would be over there, and we'd be, uh, you know, there'd always be one set of our grandparents in the house. And they would call us after four weeks to tell us that, well, they're going to be staying one more week. The owners of the club have asked her to stay over and this would go on for weeks so there was one year they spent 10 weeks performing a checkers when my father came home he paid off our our house in cash so you know th this was really the big time for them she followed one year she would follow uh people into checkers there was sinatra sang there sammy davis sang there liza minnelli was there for, uh, although my mother had some success in the U.S., uh, the success that she had in Australia was unbelievable because for a, a, a risque comedian singer to be singing on the same stage with the likes of Sinatra uh, would just show you the, the height at which she, she'd been able to achieve. 
Um, and, you know, the, the, this uh, continued every year for five years. During those days, my, my, my mom wasn't around a lot. I think that's when I really began to realize the type of industry that she was in. As her career in the United States and Australia declined, Ruth Wallace retired from performing. She gave her final major concert in Australia in 1969. Uh, my mom stopped performing in Australia. Basically, times had changed, and her, her, her lyrics and her music were no longer that shocking anymore. There were other performers that, that got in, involved in the business, and, and they weren't uh, concerned with be, being clever. Uh, they were just concerned in shock value, and, and basically their entertainment consisted of four-letter words. And that wasn't anything that my mom could do. And her, her, she still had a career here in the U.S., but it was a step backward. It was a step down, and my mom didn't do down well. And I think that uh, between the loss of, of stature in her career and whatever else may have been going on at the time, I was 11 years old, they split up then. My mom, she never remarried. My father remained single. And they reconciled and started living together two years before my father passed away. That was in 1987. After her retirement from the stage, Ruth continued to write and try to get her musicals published. Well, she started writing straight music. She, she, uh, she, she's written um, uh, music and lyrics to three and a half, I say a half because one's not finished, Broadway-style shows and they've been collecting dust for many years. These musicals included the semi-autobiographical Mama Was a Star and Prinny, a period piece about the life of Prince George of England. She spent her final years living with her son, Alan. A few years before Ruth died, she had one last moment in the spotlight. In 2003, Ruth contacted Mitch Douglas, a literary agent, about producing her plays. Here's Douglas telling the story. Well, it's very funny. It's, a, it, it, it's sort of an indirect story, but I got to know Ruth Wallace when I was about 14 years old. I had a sister who was a single mother, and she got remarried to an absolute jerk when I was a teenager. The guy had absolutely nothing going for him except his job, and his job was to go around and go to all the old 78 jukeboxes and remove the 78 jukeboxes and replace them with 45 record jukeboxes. So he had this store where he had a back room with all these old 78 records that he had taken off the jukeboxes. So I spent my weekends when I was in high school going through that room and all these wonderful records and that's where I got my musical education. And one day I picked up a record saying the dinghy song by Ruth Wallace. And I took it home and played it. And I thought, I think this is a dirty song. And then I wore it out. So I became a Ruth Wallace fan. I brought, bought every single Ruth Wallace album I could find. So I really knew her material. Now, flash forward. I'm at ICM. I'm working as an agent with some pretty nifty clients. And I've got, a new, I've got a new assistant. And I say, never screen my calls. I take everybody who calls me. But I, I heard him talking to somebody on the second phone. And I hung up. And then I picked up that phone and I said, hello, excuse me, but I was on the other phone. This is Mitch Douglas. 
And of course, my my secretary was screening her, and and I and and I had just heard her say, and I've written a show called "And Mama Was a Star," and I said, "Listen, if you're going to write musicals, they either have to be based on some something famous, or you have to be famous." And she said, "Well, people used to know who I am." And I said, I'm sorry, I didn't. I picked up in the middle of, of your conversation and I didn't hear your name. And she said, my name is Ruth Wallace. And I said, Ruth Wallace? And I sang her the dinghy song from start to finish. And she said, I love you. And I said, and I can do the you bangy song. I bangy you if you bangy me. And I can do Johnny's got the same little yo-yo that had he, he had when he was a kid. And I said, you get into this office. I want to meet you. And she came in, and she was this sort of mousy-looking little woman, but beautiful, honey blonde, beige suit, beige business suit, very, very pretty, and an absolutely knockout figure. And she was so touched. She said, you were the only person who knew who I was, and you were the only person who would take my phone call. And so we started talking about the shows she had written and a lot of shows, you know, that really had no commercial application. And, and, and I said, Ruth, I said, you really need to do a review of your songs. And, and she said, oh, well, I used to do Vegas. So I know how to do that. You get 10 boys and you get 10 girls and you have, you have seven curtains that open at various. I said, no, 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 no. So I picked out a small review that was running off Broadway and I took her to see it. I said, this is the way we do it. And you do this show with five very talented people and you do high quality. And I had a couple of guys who knew how to write musicals who were looking for a project. And I said, listen to this material. Do you think you could do a review around it? And they said, sure. And that's how we came up with Boobs, The World According to Ruth Wallace. Boobs, The Musical, The World According to Ruth Wallace, premiered in a small off-Broadway theater in New York City in 2003. The show brought together 23 of Ruth's classic songs, from Johnny's Got a Yo-Yo to Queer Things. The show made Ruth's sexual humor even more explicit. It opened with the Bride of Frankenstein in her singing breasts. Here's Alan Passman talking about opening night in New York City. Oh, it was wonderful. It was wonderful for her. I, I was there with her on, on opening night, and it was just wonderful. She was beaming, and, and, and a lot of old friends showed up that she hadn't seen for years. You know, you have to keep in mind that at that time, I think that she was 83 years old. So, uh, you know, to be able to, to stand up in the audience and take bows, and it was just, I could just feel the electricity in the crowd. The Triad Theater is the small cabaret-style theater, but still, it was wonderful. It was wonderful for her. And uh, it, was, it, it was probably, that was just uh, the very beginning when the Alzheimer's began. So it was nice that, 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 that she was able to enjoy that uh, you know, before she she started to lose some of her capabilities. Boobs offered a different type of pleasure than Ruth's songs did in the 1950s and 60s. Audiences could still enjoy her witty wordplay and laugh at her jokes, but her work was no longer risque. Critics even applauded the musical's joyous innocence and its talented cast. The critics adored it. 
And John Simon, who was the roughest son of a bitch who ever lived, wrote his review and he said, she is legendary, she's important. Her songs, when the, she, the time she wrote them were controversial and quite daring. Now they are absolutely charming. And he said, so he said, and the cast is extraordinarily talented. And so you cannot count me among the knockers of boobs. Boobs the Musical nostalgically showcased Ruth's image as a sexy chanteuse. It's a small irony that her last-ditch efforts to go mainstream resulted in her being recast in the role that she had tried so hard to break away from. Ruth's more dramatic songs never found the spotlight. After she passed away in 2007 from Alzheimer's-related complications, her New York Times obituary read, Ruth Wallace, singer-writer of risque songs, dies at 87. Ruth's obituary, however, does not capture the extent of her legacy. We can hear Ruth's influence on her contemporaries Rusty Warren and Belle Bart, and we can hear echoes of their style in the performances of successive generations of funny Jewish women like Gilda Radner, Sandra Bernhardt, Bette Midler, Joan Rivers, and Sarah Silverman. Each of these women achieved a degree of mainstream appeal and critical attention that Ruth only dreamed of. But Ruth's career likely helped to lay the groundwork for these comedians' later success. Here's Ruth Wallace singing This Is The Only Life I Know to play us out. The star sings this. This is the only life I know The stage, the band, the spotlight glow Some girls cook and some girls sew And some at 16 have a bow But at 16 I was learning do-re-do And this is the only life I know This is the only life I know Staccato, legato, pianissimo And what time do we start the show? And which is the next town where we'll go? And Christmas I'll be And Christmas I'll be In Idaho Cause this is the only life I know Sex and History is produced by Rebecca Davis, Sunia Lee Ganawi, Devin McGee and much more Lauren Gutterman, and me. Our intern is Jane Swift. Special thanks to Alan Passman, Rusty Warren, and Mitch Douglas for sharing their stories with us. A big thank you to Jennifer Kaplan and Lawrence Glaroff for sharing their historical expertise with us. Sexing History is made possible with generous funding from Alan Zwickler of the Phil Zwickler Charitable and Memorial Foundation. Created in honor of the journalist, filmmaker, poet, and gay activist Phil Zwickler, the Foundation seeks to promote human rights, education, health, and the arts, specifically with respect to the gay and lesbian community, and generally with regard to those individuals and groups who need assistance to survive and be heard. Visit them at pzfoundation.org. Sexing History is also supported by a 2018 media production grant from the Humanities Media Project in the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas, Austin. The Humanities Media Project. Their goal is to tell human stories and invite critical conversations that inspire and connect communities. They believe that the humanities play a crucial role in maintaining a healthy, democratic society. If you're enjoying our show, please support us by making a small donation. Your contribution will help us continue to produce well-researched and compelling stories. 
You can make a donation through our website, www.sexinghistory.com. We're already hard at work on exciting new episodes for Season 2 of Sexing History. Look out for these episodes in the fall. In the meantime, keep an eye on our website and social media feeds for articles, teasers, and other surprises. I'm Lauren Gutterman. I'm Gillian Frank. Thank you for listening to the first season of Sexing History. And all the women call me lucky you. No kids to raise, no dishes to do. But someday the audience will applaud no more. Fickle fame will walk out the door. The music will stop, I'll be left alone. Just wondering where the years have flown. And whatever happened to that guy named Joe who asked me to marry him so long ago? Well, he couldn't wait forever, so he got married. Come on, let's go on with the show, cause this is the only 